Recorded live in Manhattan's East Village at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, this is The Poetry Project. Um, I'm Simone White, and I am the Wednesday night coordinator and also the program director here at The Poetry Project. Uh, Welcome to all of you. Uh, Aaron Coonan is the author of Cold Genius, which is right here and really nice and for sale in the back, and four other books of poetry and prose. He lives in California. That's a nice little bio. When I'm most affected by a poet's work, by which I mean enlivened by the number and diversity of inventions and outright attacks on tendency of ideas to um, calcify, is what they say, I get a grid feeling. There's an impulse to organization that comes down to what I'm ordinarily resistant to. This is the basic impulse of the critical, the bodily joy of the imprint of a work. I'm affected this way by Aaron's work, which is absolutely crackling with control over that which cannot be controlled, the sparks given off by each encounter with the inexplicably awkward position of humanity. How's this work, one wants to know, which also means what is wrong with this person? which is how we say, I love you. Dear Aaron, the necessity of the procedures you employ in cold genius is not strictly real. I think I understand. An illumination occurs when we give special scrutiny to the words, an illumination that provides temporary guidance in the dark of how to proceed, how to proceed in the clumsiness of writing to read or reading to write. Dear Aaron, More and more I understand the pledge never to be possessed fully by the range of emotion that excellent poetry must deal in. The difference or the distance, the arch, the humorous, the penetrating and annoying desires for sex, for food, one does love to eat. Molds that must be broken somehow. Words are not toys. Dear Aaron, I take extinguished to be a reflection of a condition of genuine terror at the possibility of encountering the blank. I take the forms to be armor, a beautiful illuminated suit. Please welcome Aaron Coonan. You were responsible for her death. You wished her dead and she died. As all will die, whose deaths you wish, as well as those whose lives you would spare. So their deaths are your fault, too, because you failed them. Add to them others killed through your negligence, under your sign, on your behalf, those abandoned or never adopted by you. To you also the guilt of those who were your tools, confronted by their faces, legs, arms, and voices joined together, their work not done, dishes in the sink, undischarged obligations. He died in the battle, then fear and sadness infected my milk. My baby died on the boardwalk. I died when you turned your car into the crowd. I died in a cage. You don't even recognize them. They look like different people. If there remain some few whose deaths 
you did not cause. Think about what your ancestors did to get your nice things, which have been your nice things for so long, they really are not very nice. Build a monument, hire a choir, do not remember, do not think, not today, do not let my guilt cause my death. Never quite convinced artist of bourgeois guilt that nice things are nicer than nasty ones. Learn to enjoy atoning for your inheritance, being held upside down or bound by a fire. Will this expiate? Your pleasure soon dissolved in guilt because now you are taking pleasure in the worst thing you have done. I wake up. My body doesn't. I can't move. I think I can't breathe because my body is running the sleep breathing program, not letting me control my own breathing. I hallucinate someone who sits on my chest and stifles my breath. Once it was the chicken pox, a man who said, I will always be part of you. Another time, it was Renee from school. I felt her fingers close around my throat. I am not Renee, she whispered, disguising her voice in the hands of an angry god, with one hand being held and with the other held to the fire. I thought it might be you. I knew it was you when I heard your voice. What you said was similar to the chicken pox. I am still with you. After you spoke, I regained motor control. My hallucination ended. Was it my cat or the devil? Weight settles on me. Is this sleep? Here's one by John Milton. But who is this? What thing of sea or land? Female of sex, it seems, that so bedecked, ornate, and gay, comes this way sailing, like to a stately ship of Tarsus, bound for the isles with all her bravery on, and tackle trim, sails filled and streamers waving, courted by all the winds that hold them play, an amber scent of odorous perfume, her harbinger, a damsel train behind, some rich Philistian matron she may seem, and now, at nearer view, no other certain than Delilah, thy wife. Yet on she moves, now stands and eyes thee fixed, about to have spoke, but now with head declined, like a fair flower surcharged with dew, she weeps, and words addressed seem into tears dissolved, wetting the borders of her silken veil. But now again she makes address to speak. With doubtful feet and wavering resolution, I came, 
still dreading thy displeasure, Samson, which to have merited without excuse I cannot but acknowledge. Yet if tears may expiate, though the fact more evil drew in the perverse event than I foresaw, my penance hath not slackened, though my pardon no way assured. Conjugal affection, prevailing over fear and timorous doubt, hath led me on, desirous to behold once more thy face, and know of thy estate, if aught in my ability may serve to lighten what thou sufferest, and appease thy mind with what amends is in my power, though late, yet in some part to recompense my rash but more unfortunate misdeed. Yet hear me, Samson, not that I endeavor to lessen or extenuate my offense, but that on the other side, if it be weighed by itself, with aggravations not surcharged, or else with just allowance counterpoised, I may, if possible, thy pardon find the easier towards me, or thy hatred less. First, granting, as I do, it was a weakness in me, but incident to all our sex, curiosity, inquisitive, importune of secrets, then with like infirmity to publish them both common female faults. Was it not weakness also to make known for importunity, that is, for naught, wherein consisted all thy strength and safety? To what I did, thou showedst me first the way, but I to enemies revealed and should not. Nor shouldst thou have trusted that to woman's frailty, ere I to thee, thou to thyself wast cruel. Let weakness then with weakness come to parl, so near related or the same of kind. Thine forgive mine, that men may censure thine the gentler, if severely thou exact not more strength from me than in thyself was found. And what if love, which thou interpretst hate, the jealousy of love, powerful of sway in human hearts, nor less in mine towards thee, caused what I did. I saw thee mutable of fancy, feared lest one day thou wouldst leave me as her at Timna, sought by all means, therefore, how to endear and hold thee to me firmest. No better way I saw than by importuning to learn thy secrets, get into my power the key of strength and safety, thou wilt say why then revealed. I was assured by those who tempted me that nothing was designed against thee but safe custody and hold. That made for me. I knew that liberty would draw thee forth to perilous enterprises, while I at home sat full of cares and fears, wailing thy absence in my widowed bed. Here I should enjoy thee day and night, mine and love's prisoner, not the Philistines, whole to myself, 
unhazarded abroad, fearless at home of partners in my love. These reasons in love's law have passed for good, though fond and reasonless to some, perhaps. If you ever speak in public, if in a few different settings you give the same speech, you figure out where the laughs are. Different audiences laugh in the same place. It's a way of animating people, imprisoning their souls in their bodies, taking control of their bodies away from their captive souls as total as pain. You opened them. They are showing on their bodies the sharp edge of the opening you put in them. Now correct and adjust your voice. Experiment with the timing. Pausing so they can have a long laugh. Search for places where you can drag a laugh out of them if you exaggerate. You eventually begin to suspect getting laughs is easy. Being in a group makes them want to laugh. They laugh at foolish sayings, at honest sayings. Someone in a group will laugh at a foolish thing that a solitary person will scarcely notice or only be irritated by, until it becomes more interesting to separate the laughs or mute them. A solitary person laughing at a joke no one else understands. Everyone laughing quietly by themselves at a joke they do not intend to share. Until one day you encounter an audience of people who don't laugh What's the matter with them? They feel the weight of the other occasions when you told the same story. They recognize the sound in your words of other laughing auditors. Now you are feeling the handle of the knife you put in them. Strange way of being held. Out of the body I wander and communicate with other bodies in the ordinary way of doing things, says the soul. But my freedom consists mainly in my body's immediate response to my intentions. Pain, sex, and laughter imprison me in my body. I can give myself pain. I can get myself off. Laughing, my body holds me so that I can't tickle myself. One stage is a kind of playing where I'm hovering between pretending to react and pretending not to react, holding myself together, almost in love with the surrender my composure averts. That's when I completely lose it, helpless, in disarray, my lost composure inciting more laughter. One moment like that leads to another, increasing, like a laddered 
stalking. The first tear widens with each new attack. There is a last stage on the other side of losing composure where my body has nothing to give and tries to laugh. This stage is mainly exhaustion and emptiness and some pain. The discovery of laughter must have been tickling. The sense of humor came later. Notice the strange reversal. When your deadpan fails, you lose your grip. While you laugh at your own antics, your listeners do not laugh. It's exactly like being tickled. Frigidity and diminished responsiveness, one step closer to having no sense of humor, to the sensation of being tickled, are two symptoms of one variety of impotence. Example of dualism. Can nervousness disable both ticklish feeling and sexual arousal? Ticklish and sexy are opposites, aren't they? Tickling, unlike sex, has no climax. Phillips. The incredible thing about tickling is that it has nothing to do with fantasy. To be tickled, to be helplessly tickled, to the point of surrender, I have to put my fantasy apparatus to sleep. Unlike sex, where I can't climax unless I connect my body to a fantasy. Turned on by the thought of sex, not tickled by the thought of tickling. Thus, I can't tickle myself any more than I can satisfy my hunger by rubbing my belly. Diogenes. Would you have invented sex? Would you have found it out through trial and error? No more than I would have invented breaking an egg and consuming the yolk and white. Would you have invented kissing, for instance, if I could get there through tickling, rather than stupid physical pain or sex, I would, or if there were pills to induce sensitivity to being tickled, I would take them. Besides, I'm not impotent. It works fine, as long as no one's with me. I'm not turned on by other bodies. A common mistake is to think pain separates the torturer from the victim. Pain is private, impossible to communicate the pain that you are feeling, but more intimate than romance. Love isn't knowledge. In learning about another person, there is no point at which you know enough to love them. In loving, no point at which trusting them would be wise. Because the point is to give you just as much pain as you can bear without dying from pain, which would be private. You feel strangely close. What you are feeling is someone's complete knowledge of you. A sense of intimacy shattered when the torturer miscalculates. Not unlike when a joke falls flat. Oh.
Sometimes, in great pain, the victim starts to laugh uncontrollably, as if in contempt of pain, but with the senses in confusion, in fact, giving up the last trace of composure, soul trapped in your body, which continues to laugh, and never quite able to catch your breath to cry. Sometimes, I think, tickling is at the heart of things. Little dog, little toy, little soul, where does my sense of humor go when I am dead? Dear colleague, in words and flesh, your routines held me in outright prolonged laughter. As little as I had, I did not hoard, but freely gave. What strange dwelling will you build now that you are colorless, hard as ice, your full leaf laid bare, the soul's reply. Come on, little toy, words spoken with his body, to his body. My name is Joe. I am your soul, your little soul. In modern Greece, all the moving vans have the same word emblazoned on their outsides. Metaphoros, the remover. I dematerialized your objects, replaced them with images, reproduced the images in other objects, carried them to distant lands, from forgotten times to unanticipated times, without dent or scratch, and at minimal cost, for I reserved the image, subtracting the weight. I showed you secret passages between things, beauty that shocks you, killing you with a cold hand, merciless love that demands Ascent, killing you with heat. My greatest gift, which I gave unwillingly, life itself, which ends with laughter. Only your sense of humor lives on after death, on an endless transoceanic flight with no one to laugh at your jokes, boredom increasing past the threshold of computation, with no sleep, no book, no movie, and no landing. Farewell, wit. Farewell, hobbledehoy body, with a purple mark about the mouth, for the same reason the legs swell and the pen leaks. Delightful living, sweet living, pleasant living. Here's more Milton. I see thou art implacable, more deaf to prayers than winds and seas, yet winds to seas are reconciled at length, and sea to shore. Thy anger, unappeasable, still rages, eternal tempest never to be calmed. Why do I humble thus myself, and suing for peace, Reap nothing but repulse and hate. Bid go with evil omen and the brand of infamy upon my name denounced. 
to mix with thy concernments, I desist henceforth, nor too much disapprove my own. Fame, if not double-faced, is double-mouthed, and with contrary blast proclaims most deeds. On both his wings, one black, the other white, bears greatest names in his wild, airy flight. My name, perhaps, among the circumcised, in Dan, in Judah, and the bordering tribes, to all posterity may stand defamed, with malediction mentioned, and the blot of falsehood most unconjugal traduced. But in my country, where I most desire, in Ekron, Gaza, Asdod, and in Gath, I shall be named among the famousest of women, sung at solemn festivals, living and dead recorded, who to save her country from a fierce destroyer chose, above the faith of wedlock bands, my tomb, with odors visited and annual flowers. Not less renowned than in Mount Ephraim, Yael, who with inhospitable guile smote Sisera, sleeping through the temples, nailed. First, mother made me by removing her luminous beauty from one area of her body. Earth, where her foot fell, cooled and hardened around the dent. Impression left by a fingernail in the skin of an apple. I never grew, but more and more of the beauties she had in me dwindled, teeth seeming to lengthen showing their roots as the gums recede, just a piece of mother with all her treasures kept back. On my tongue, the edge of an unpleasant flavor that I instinctively knew to be death. A proud and overprotective parent of the one thing she had invented, she rather enjoyed seeing her blood go about in a different shape, my sweet mother, proud of all that I kept hidden, deeply moved or merely chewing, I learned early to hear the sound of coughing with unconcern, merely a cut through which you may see a short distance into her face, and that's her mouth, uniformly silver, a cold color, in hair, green eyes blanched gray, where I learned to seek happiness in a woman's glance. She burned through the earth when she divided her store of beauties from her substance. The remainder froze, and she froze the remover, as alike as one of the halves of an apple to the other. Could two faces make a third face by friction of one mouth against another, could one face split into two copies of itself, and I, their mirror, now told apart by temperature, or the notch in the ear, 
or just by pointing, of luminous beauty, her defining feature, absent from your composition, a seemingly casual mention. I looked up from a fiery outline. Her face held warring energies in check, sovereign and ecstatic. I would have enjoyed saying that my forehead was hotter than her iron, but truthfully, I guess it wasn't since the brand left a visible scar. I love women. Thank you. We are very lucky to have a special guest tonight to introduce Charles North. And that special guest is John Godfrey. And he's right here. Please, John. I'm honored and glad to be doing this for Charles, and i really honored. And only this afternoon did it occur to me that I'm going to be making comments in front of the people who are closest to him and know his work best, and I think, oh, what am I going to do, you know? <laughs> Uh, in honor of that, I wrote something down instead of ad-libbing because then I usually get lost. I'm going to give a lot of information here that you probably are familiar with, maybe not. Charles North is the author of Lineups, Elizabethan and Nova Scotian Music, Six Buildings, Leap Year, Poems 1968 to 1978, The Year of the Olive Oil, New and Selected Poems, The Nearness and the Way You Look Tonight, Cadenza, Complete Lineups, what it is like, new and selected poems. He published No Other Way in 1998, a collection of prose works on poets and artists. He co-edited with Jimmy Schuyler the two editions of Broadway, a poets and painters anthology. He collaborated with Tony Toll on the extended poem Gemini and collaborated with painter Trevor Rinkfield on a book called Tulips. He has led workshops here at St. Mark's and has been associated with Pace University for a long time and for the last 18 years has been poet in residence there. North was born in New York. He studied classical clarinet, was playing in classical orchestra settings by age 13, and spent summers at the Interlochen Music Festival and School in Michigan. He majored in English literature and philosophy at Tufts University, graduating in 1962. He began writing poetry seriously after catching on to Kenneth Koch's classes at the New School in 1966. He began really to write after attending Tony Toll's workshop at St. Mark's around 1969-1970, where he met Paul Violi. Toll, Violi, and North became fast friends thereafter, sharing a joie de vivre of the mind and shared interest in the manner of poems while remaining very distinguishable from each other in their work. Toll and North edited Violi's selected poems, 1970-2011, following Violi's terrible death in 2011. Classical musicianship, English literature, and philosophy. All three have their own vocabularies. From music, I sense that North applies the acute listening and judgmental ear that perceives quality of tone and precision of phrasing and attack. From the English literary canon, the long and rational sentence structure. From philosophy, the description of thought process and order. And he bangs on all of this with a rubber hammer. This requires virtuosity, 
In an otherwise convincingly conventional line, he will make, as it were, an abrupt change of register. Were the change blatantly an arbitrary gesture, there would be no resonance. He manages to change register, cause delight in an unexpected flight of hyperbole, and also render it as a graspable and shareable perception. Quote, now that I am seeing myself as a totally different person whose interests are like a street covered with slush and whose every word rings like the ear of a spaniel, night joins with its various egos. That's from poem in Elizabethan and Nova Scotian. Here there is eloquence, hyperbole on a leash, an insight that has disquieting properties. The abstract immediately visual and felt woven together. The thoughts in these long phrases are punctuated by commas, as if the composer has placed them strategically so that the player might catch a quick breath. There are poems of more than 20 lines, punctuated by a full stop period only after the last word. A musical piece of a single movement, a verbal composition like Poulenc's sonata for Brent Benny Goodman. Yes, philosophy succeeds through the disquiet it arouses, especially if its continuity is abstraction linked to a specific from the sensorium, especially from sight. Quote, As the captain of my fate and steer of my star, I don't feel any single decision irrevocable, feeling inadequate to life's daily immensities, a condition of the unwillingness to act. For of the things that are human, the best is to be unavoidable which doesn't make it any better, but doesn't make it worse. Like that sunset, I'm always refusing to look behind or away from, as if to be dull were the reverse of not shining, and living selfishly when that too is exhaustible. It's from a few facts about me, again from Elizabethan. Somewhat Georgian in manner, post-extential in perception, and compassionately cognitive, the crisscrossing of these properties presents anything merely confessional from trying to cut in on the dancer. In the last 20 years, he has exercised his vivid mind on location, making up lines from sensory receptions that seem to occur after his vocabulary is already at work on them, as if on looking into the backyard, he sees his thoughts dress themselves. Thought dominates the pastoral, but for shining grace notes, quote, the ginkle leaves are part air, part cheesecloth, like the softeners between lens and faces in old movies from after Yeats in What It Is Like. Quote, the rain finally came and left. In between, steady downpour, followed by incredible, which is to say computer-generated, fog, strands, fronds, wall hangings, tarpaulins, dark disdain, summer of living dangerously in Cadenza. I'm reminded of Elwad from one of his examples. The hand doesn't forget what the eyes have invented. Wit and humor are easy words to apply to North's work. I think him, of him more as a comedy man, wherein feelings and tensions and peacefulness are foiled, only to be made whole and happy through improvement by substitution. Uh, Charles North. Thank you, John. That was wonderful. You, you quoted from a couple of, um, couple of old poems, and I thought I would, probably not that old, but I thought I would start with um, a few older ones and then work my way up to the present. Um, 
And the first thing I'm going to read, for a particular reason, is a poem dedicated to, it's fairly old, I don't, I don't think I've read it in a long time, a poem dedicated to my friend Bob Hershen. It's called, uh, I'm not going to read it all because it's too long, I'm going to read parts of it. It's called Shooting for Line. And the reason I'm reading it is that I went to hear a reading of his a couple of weeks ago, and he announced that he was going to read a poem dedicated to me, and then pretended he couldn't find it. <laughs> so so I, I thought I would rise above that publicly. And Um, so this is, this is just a couple of parts from it. Uh, I, I should tell you that uh, the poem is kind of an ode, sort of, to a, uh, a particular figure of speech, oddly enough, which is known as zugma, uh, sometimes as solepsis, which means that you, it involves um, a single, usually verb or something else, governing uh, two different things in the same phrase or sentence in two different ways, two entirely different ways. The classic example is, pardon the expression, Alexander Pope in um, Rape of the Lock to stain her honor or her new brocade. Yes, we all know that. Okay. Who doesn't seek to improve basic reading skills or the land? Write off a fair weather friend or a sequel to War and Peace. It isn't rehashing the past, yesterday's shepherd's pie, to blow the whistle on the funeral industry, the wet shutters seemingly all night long, to endow her with more than the eye can see, a small liberal arts college to the tune of $300 million and hail to the chief, touching most major side issues and the place where scar tissue had substantially healed, or ruling the letterhead paper and what is in reality an extremely small fiefdom to hit the nail on the head, a frozen rope. To divide your love equally or anything but a prime number, lose your balance or your index cards, or single you out from all others through the drawn-in infield while moving heaven and earth, the carefully created stemware. It opens new doors, the season of mists and mellow fruitfulness. Pen the hogs, your last will and testament, relating to the same, I'm sorry, relating to the issue under advisement, your mother's side, to catch the meaning and or Walter Johnson, colored by unconscious associations and the barely discernible tints of February's trial balloon by long forgotten ordeal. Uh, and here's the, here's the end. To conclude, It's much too long to read. Rooted in good loamy soil and the Lockean doctrine of individual rights, firing the old flintlock and the watchman, shooting for a line or at the absolute outside the middle of next March. If you push your luck or the dangerous past pawn all the way to the eighth rank, it may help to collect items from the suggestion box, your wits where they still lie, effectively closing the book and the prolonged meeting. It amounts to the same larding lectures with factitiously appealing anecdotal material or the beef with fat despite consequences to the arteries. Or you can put your stamp on the postcard or postmodern American poetry or motion to the auctioneer for an adjournment to lend an air of April or your very best blue suit, sweep the minefield clear and all the accumulated dust into the corner. <clears throat> the next is... Um, written about the same time, it's probably 20 years ago. And I don't think I've ever read this, um, ever read it aloud, so I, I, thought, I, I thought I would. Um, it was written for a, uh, a booklet um, put out by Bill Corbett uh, to honor the poet Jimmy Schuyler. It's called Seven Days in July. 
July 9. Has the chicory done any writing lately? July 19. The ghostly cat belonging to the neighbor who was away killed one of the two swallows that had been fond of perching on the pruned nubs of the lilac bush. We all had a front row seat. After disappearing with the carcass, he rematerialized around dusk, lying in wait for something, dessert, just at the edge of the unmown grass. Eerily, the moon, at about the same time, appeared to be losing shape, or somehow changing it radically, as though the bag that normally houses it had had its drawstring loosened, permitting gravity and distortion for once to operate. Moon, cat, breasts, Queen Anne's lace, a few newly mown stars all lying on the lawn underneath hazy cloud cover. July 25. If there's nothing outside the window but the swamp maple in itself, and nothing inside but the pen writing as it writes, then the glow of the new leaves is a phenomenon of which, if I have knowledge, I can't say, and if I don't, I can't know it, apart from the leaves themselves, which appear to magnetize the declining sun every afternoon and pull it through quantities of unspeakably charged states of being. July 26. The 10 stages of reality. Landscape, distance, figment, evanescence, youth, the collective unconscious, perspicacity, dusk, logic, ground cover. July 28, the Villa Rotunda of days. Would be nice right about now. Who was it who said, my daughter is a lucky man, she has me for a father? <clears throat> July 29, what would be lost if, as happens to be the case, the writing adds nothing Neither does it subtract from the sum total of experience the day has entirely on its own. What about the house fly and its short writing life, screened in or screened out? Romantic spiders, neoclassical bumblebees, symbolist and occasionally cubist-leaning hornets, surrealist fireflies, the criticism of mosquitoes. July 31, real wind, not breeze during the afternoon, leaving early evening adrift about 10 feet from the shore, waving its arms, but calmly, aware of an inner strength. The dull slate blue of the hills is what seawater might look like if a storm cloud were suddenly dipped into it. And the last one uh, says date lost. Don't know what the date was. As though drill bits of sky had broken off, and in addition to losing almost all function, had acquired a rather cold greenish tone as they approached closer to earth. I don't think I've ever read this either, uh, and John quoted a line from it, interestingly enough. It's a little prose poem called After Yates. New York City poem. One, the ground opens up, which means that in reality, it closes a part of a large space previously unnoticed, flecked with white like a sky in February or an Oxford shirt. Two, the ginkgo leaves are part air, part cheesecloth, like the softeners between lens and faces in old movies. This one has a few full-fledged gaps through which all the poetry gets lost in translation. It isn't escapist to want to live forever and to remember what to ask for. Not necessarily eternal youth, rather something like eternal absence of old age, chronic illness, plagues, etc. Enter and exit, ghost. Three, in the pre-war buildings that run together like streams, the urgency travels in what I would call a human way. It's hard to tell the height of one roof from the cutting edge of another. 
elevated, though not extravagantly, like her forehead over her eyes. Uh, a few years ago, I came up with the idea of uh, translating my own poems into English. And um, I'll, I'll read a couple. There's a, first I'll read one of the, one of the first attempts, and then um, I'll read from this uh, chapbook called Translation, which has five of them with beautiful pencil drawings by Paula North. This is the original, then I'll read the translation. It's the first section of a, of a longish poem called Building Sixteens. The building is donut-colored light, and the colored light behind, carved shadows included, is littered with donuts. Good spelling doesn't get you very far in life, nor, counting the number of buildings which have so far landed, are there genuine imperatives to go with the structural side, the grosser qualities of things, the ones that settle on people, doing their shopping for them, planning ornate purposes that glimmer and delineate before they fade. And this is the translation. The windowed construction is the rusted color of a crawler, and the insubstantial hues on the other side, not excluding hard-edged shade, have crawler written all over them. Knowing the correct order letters appear in a word won't make you a CEO. Neither, CF the new rocket ship apartment buildings, are there regulations when it comes to the big shapes of the city, the macroeconomics of personal identity, supplying motives for buying this or that product, influencing life choices that excite but rarely go beyond the talking stage before they sputter and hiss and go dark. Okay, I'll, I'll read the first and last of these translations with this gorgeous cover, if I am allowed to say that. Well, actually, well, maybe. Okay, here's the first poem in the book. Uh, the first poem is called Poem for Trevor Winkfield. Two mops are cavorting in the next world. What do you do? Nothing. I don't do anything. Orange light, then darkness, then orange light. And the translation is titled Jig. A pair of Swiffers are doing a jig in the afterlife. How do you spend the time? I don't. It passes. A burst like a marigold, then nothing. Same again. I'm reading this in front of, um, well, I see one of the best translators in the world. Um, there are probably others too, so it makes me a little bit nervous. Anyway, uh, this is called Urban Landscape uh, for Ron Paget. <clears throat> what if, instead of growing older, we rose a few inches a year until approximately double mature height, passing every manner of person against a background of windows, walls, cars, posts, and tree trunks between the sidewalk and the second story, sun inching down, clouds strung out overhead. Suspension. Suppose mortal life had spatial and not temporal bounds, each person inching upward to a maximum of, say, six feet off the ground, such that the city air, framed by the natural and also man-made objects one notices while walking up a city block, 
is filled with far more people than a Magritte painting. The sun appearing to descend in tiny increments towards the region of fixed clouds. Okay, um, some newer ones. This is a prose poem. It's called Pain Quotient, and it's uh, dedicated to David Watson, a friend. One, how to explain tragedy to a deer? This is the assignment. Well, it isn't the assignment, it's in the general category of things assigned, like growing to a mature height of four inches if you happen to be a certain strain of ornamental cactus, or being shamed back to life by any means possible. I like the idea that hope springs eternal, especially as the adjective, not adverb, suggests that spring is a verb of being rather than action. It doesn't have to be imagined or looked forward to or yearned for or original in any sense of the word. The present which is always with us, regardless. Take the piano music of objects, the black and white, the mystical harmony, harmonics, bipolarities, etc. Two. The afternoon smells like rosemary, whereas the morning was on the visual side, jutting among the albums. Someone David knew, an actress, referred to the Café Pain Quotidien as pain quotient, apparently with a straight face. It's true. The daily pain, which I seem to remember my father bringing home from work. Or if you happen to be in show business, the pan. Take the extremist willows. Three, 5.30 p.m., the soul goes out for its walk. Just be sure you're back in time for supper. The colors look pasted on, washy blue like a robin's egg seen through a landlord's shade, then just washed away. Where's conceptual art when you need it? Everyone knows that Janus Weathercock and Cornelius Van Vinkboons are too good not to be true, but very few know of their connection to the poet John Clare, or that they were in fact the same person, who not only worked for London Magazine in the early part of the 19th century, but was, according to Clare's biographer, Jonathan Bate, the Oscar Wilde of his day. I say metaphors have it easy. Brahms surging, receding, churning the already churned foam of being, whereas Rachmaninoff is like a fist to the heart. Four, suppose everyone were a lot less talkative or, or were prohibited from talking to anyone who spoke the same language, not only people, but houseplants, raccoons, self-service elevators, winged salesmen from the future, etc. A gem-like solid framed by a ribbon of aluminum light begins in speech, but is diverted primarily by all the mistakes from the remembered past. Another episode has a word whirling around its phonemes, which are also whirling. We were talking about shaming someone back into life, the blood verities, hanging in the air like a memory lost, but recapturable if you don't mind the mix of truth and sprawl, fragments of all that can be thought without accompaniment or fixation, or whatness. Characters get dragged in kicking and screaming from the wings and forget their resonant ties to objects. To be calmer than a rug, a particle from the 1940s, dizzying, I'll take it. But you can have the stifling dream states like a perpetual air raid. Why so many notions settling in the middle of the forehead like a tableau vivant? so much more cause than affect. The summer retired early, was forced out actually, like the recorder family from Main Street, mainstream music. Mixed use, but heartfelt skyline.
This is an old one that I came across, came across recently when trying to collect archives. It's called Stars Over Hollowville, which is a real town. I get it. My love has emerged in her French blue and cream smock for half the dream. Niches of the splintered soul held up not by or for or withstanding illumination's foot, which is the translation roughly, but with the downpour irregularly holding and drenching the dark, including, at the much lighter end, an address book about fence level in the crotch of a gnarled oak, the aegis, be careful. Variations. <clears throat> One. Okay, you can't say it, just as you can't say time passes or passed yesterday or is around the corner, almost here. The day is scratchy, not impossible. It did some skipping in the morning, but calmed down by lunch. What is the smallest unit that can be considered lyrical but not sentimental? Grassy as a backyard, separated like people despite their relentless shading into one another, appealing as objects that can stand on their own without undue wobbling or confusion, too. Nor as long as we're on the subject is it exactly true to say that poems or lives are abandoned rather than finished, however that jibes with current procedure. Sometimes what appears to be abandoned was finished and then taken up again, etc. Reinstatement producing not quite identity, but groupings having to do with qualities as vague as aura or feel. A better way of saying that might be that differences in style, bumps in the road, are part and parcel of overall flow, and as such fit the predisposition to patterning that enables general qualities, including solace, to become essentials in the ongoing search for tangible resolution. Three, the related question of how long meanings actually last is at least as muted as where an answer would leave us not hopefully all but buried beneath expectations that ride roughshod over what was clear at the outset. That of the myriad ways to talk about what can't finally be resolved, some have their basis in feeling, others permit understanding to be only as coherent as those who indulge in it, and a good portion of the rest occupy a position on the fault line between tone and logic, quite apart from whatever vogue, tinged as it may be by habits of long standing, for sequence, as in the scratchiness which I referred to earlier regardless of what seems and for all practical purposes is the case. Four, to transpose to things, how long they persist, persist and whether or not what we understand as persistence is smooth or rough or some unlikely coalition of the two permeating the wish for solace, whether on the thin side like winter shade or displayed in piercing daylight, and whether the gradual underlining of the idea that we are contributors to this view as much as recipients stacks the deck. Five, objections aside, the so-called verbs of being continually approach a precipice which has less to do with depth or immediacy than faraway implications soaked with skin, teeth, eyesight, etc. A basis, in other words, but one whose deference to the present masks endless gaps in much the same way appearance, despite its well-known devotion to us and all we accomplish, has one foot in forecasts that can't possibly be accurate, at least to the, to the degree most of us hope and pray for. Six, the long road which forgetfulness may wander, which doesn't stop anybody from persisting, but does produce a ground base of expectancy that brandishes even while it pretends to pull back with the most obvious consequences. Not that goals are continually being redistributed within, within an identifiable range, but that the resulting physics 
plows into the timeline with such force that the axes are too much with us. Separating progress from habit, high rises from the rolling playing field that takes in economic and social forces as much as untitled need. Seven, this is the last. Anyone can write an ode to behavior on the part of creatures whose originals by and large keep to themselves. Muster the caring, each judgment strained to the point of obloquy before snagging on the recentness of the past in question, together with its programmers and strayed verbs ganging up on what used to seem sown in such a way that the on-again, off-again relation to privacy that forms a purchase on so much still to be framed is skimmed off like the merest dawn, i.e., abandoned prior to being cut down to make room for all that glistens in front, lost as much as sequence while the credits stream overhead. Okay, uh, I know. I'm gonna do something that, uh, I'm gonna try something that I, sort of fingers crossed, I, I have never done before. I have a long poem in progress, about twice as long as anything I've ever done, and uh, I'm gonna read the first section of it. It's four sections. It's titled Everything, and it has a, an epigraph by George Harriman, who, who did Crazy Cat. Everything is just nothing repeating itself. Stop me if you've heard this one. Two llamas poke their heads out of the small stone enclosure, part of a garage, they spend their time in, when they're not taking the sun in a tiny fenced-in yard dotted with wildflowers. Just as we turned to look, a small flock of wild turkeys materialized out of nothing and began squawking clearly at us. Who knew they were the concierge family? Everything gusts and then dies back down. At least as likely, everything exists inside a giant thought balloon which rides continual gusts, although no one can possibly speak about, let alone contemplate the situation. As to the air outside the balloon, spangled with oak leaves and high strips of white clouds, let's leave that one for now. As the beaver said to the log, half in, half out of water, getting to gnaw you, getting to gnaw all about you. Spe speaking of balloons, the image I've always liked from as far back as high school is the lead one, successful as a lead balloon. It took off like a lead balloon. The fact that it got off the ground at all before plummeting with a loud thud does a good job of encapsulating human striving wedded to human failure. Not certainly that the conjunction is inevitably the case, but the poignancy, to me anyway, is palpable. As to the light from outside that must penetrate the thought balloon, regardless of its color or degree of translucence, that too seems best left for later, like playing two, two hours of tennis following a bout of pneumonia, or the view of Niagara that nobody has. What did the 20-ounce bottle of Perrier say to the late afternoon sunlight struggling to get indoors? The apartment building has more openings than the sprawling cemetery on the way to the dump in Hudson, or the one littering the heavily trafficked Manhattan approach to the Robert F. Kennedy formerly Triborough Bridge. You'd think the fumes themselves would be enough of a discourager. You say tomato, and I say everything is consumed by its appearances. I've been instructed to push a handful of minor characters back into the wings, but they won't go, no matter how hard I try. The pencil line between being and not being, hardly static however it looks, 
more accurately between staying put and erupting into feelings that can't be held in check, like the corruption seemingly built into medical advertising aimed directly at the TV viewing public, reminds me of the boundary line between so-called feeling and so-called understanding. To have a purchase on, no thoroughly by close contact with or long experience of, as opposed to hearsay or even legitimate authority. As the great Russian poet Mayakovsky sidestepped at least some of the more sinister aspects of futurism, only to fall victim to himself as well as to comrades who didn't mean nearly as well as they should have, so time fights off just about every conjunction, those with some connection to space as well as, as, well as just about any others you can come up with. There goes one now. No, it's a bird batting by. In fact, the sky, as well as Stevens' remark of the moral world just prior to the onset of World War II, in contrast to T.S. Eliot, whom Stevens somewhat surprisingly singles out for praise, is going floppier. Warped tent stakes, an occasional scrawny pigeon on the wing, one roof garden with a flapping umbrella, which from the back looks like Our Lady of the George Washington Bridge, but no cloud structure to reinforce it unless you count the grayish wisps, barely clouds, that have hung around the Palisades for most of the morning. Actually, the view is appealing, as long as it doesn't decide to go too far in the direction of floppiness and risk falling over into the appearance of whatever's holding it up, a girder or pylon or some idea of structure per se that hasn't yet been instantiated. Speaking of support, I've had a hard time forgetting about the guy in our building who I used to see going for his run every morning before breakfast who jumped from his 10th floor back window and magically survived, seriously broken bones but alive, apparently because he landed in a tiny courtyard on a bale of recycled newspapers, primarily the New York Times. Does that qualify as the ethical sphere? Maybe just? A few mornings ago, just before I woke up, a few persons with backpacks and what seemed like iron maps several inches thick were bobbing up and down on platforms that looked like ice flows, but more cork than ice. Every once in a while, one of them went over with a silent splash. Suicide is one of the silent E-words, but so are cope and rosette. Inchoate, baseline, nape. Here's one. How many singularities can fit onto the head of a pin pushed into the so-called bulletin board of consciousness? Cork again, but not a real theme, I'm pretty sure. As distinct from the riptides, sinkholes, tsunamis, you name it, occasionally just a tone row or cluster that emerge seemingly out of nothing to manhandle the attention principle and hold on from what can seem and in some cases be hours or even days. So how best to use one's time, which in one very large sense is everything, is at best a conundrum worth examining, and at worst, the exam and the dream, with all the silent percussion, in the course you've never signed up for, although everyone else is scribbling away at their desks next to their green lamps, the lanyap being, somewhat like dusk, a new range of colors, intonations, shapes, etc., which is familiar and also entirely out of the blue. I'm gonna close with three tiny ones, um, all of them related to songs. <clears throat> Show tune for Harry Matthews. Rosemary, qu'est-ce qu'il y a? The incurable wound that pierces the dark to the tune of lush life would just as soon be dawn in Antibes and that half-finished translation move everyone to tears. Like me, actually. Um, the next... 
I have to say one thing about this. Um, John mentioned a book, Complete Lineups. The title wasn't totally serious, um, but this was published a number of years ago. It was uh, poems in the form of baseball lineups. And for some reason, um, this particular one didn't get into the book, and it was I discovered it after the book was published. It's called Tuning Up, and it's, it was written for Bill Berkson. So it has, um, batting first and playing center field, I've got a crush on you. Batting second and playing second base, anything goes. Batting third and playing left, lush life. Batting cleanup, playing first base, round midnight. Batting fifth, catching willow tree. Batting sixth and playing third base, save the bones for Henry Jones. Henry don't eat no meat. Batting seventh and playing right field, I got lost in his arms. Shortstop, eighth, button up your overcoat. And batting ninth and pitching, and this is not the person, it's the song by Dave Fishberg, Van Lingle Mungo. This is the last one. It's called Please Don't Talk About Me When I'm Gone. Old song. Back in a jiff. If a drink can be a Bloody Mary, why can't a cloud, stunted and pucked by evening, be a world view? Because I say so. The daffodil with the unlikely color variation, arms long and small. Thank you. The Poetry Project has promoted, fostered, and inspired the reading and writing of contemporary poetry since 1966. Consider supporting us by checking out a reading, becoming a member, or donating at poetryproject.org.